It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, last week uh, there was uh, a, a, a talk that took place around the press freedom and land defense. Um, and part of the people that took part in that were Carl Dockstater and Karen Pugliese. They are on the line with us uh, for this conversation. Um, we're also joined by someone uh, from the Six Nations area, uh, Skylar Williams, uh, and he's a spokesperson for the Mackenzie Meadows area. And this started because, uh, and, and one of the things that, that happened with, with re- recently with Carl Dockstetter is he, he was arrested in uh, conjunction with uh, Land Back Lane, as it's been called out there on, on the Six Nations area in Caledonia. So I want to welcome uh, Carl to the show, first of all. Thanks for having me. You bet. And uh, Karen Pugliese. Thanks for having me back. You bet. And Skylar Williams. Thank you. Carl Dockstetter, he's uh, a Knight of Bear Clan, and he is part of the One Dish, One Mike show that runs uh, Sunday mornings on 610 CKTB uh, in the Niagara area in St. Catharines. And he's also uh, one half of the award-winning uh, uh, Journalism Foundation, prestigious CJF uh, CBC Indigenous Fellowship Award. And so it's a pleasure to have Carl on the show. And we're going to talk to him a, a little bit about what it was like uh, to be arrested uh, in, in regard to doing his job of journalism. Uh, Karen, we're going to uh, talk to Karen, of course, because she was, uh, for uh, quite a number of years, about seven, she was the executive, dire- executive director of News and Current Affairs at the Aboriginal People's Television Network, and she is now part of the Ryerson's faculty uh, in Toronto. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Skylar, uh, spokesperson for Land Back Lane. Why don't we start with uh, Skylar? Skylar, if you don't mind giving us a little bit of background on on Land Back Lane as it stands uh, up to this point. You know, I can't help but think about how this this is so familiar because of what happened back in 2006 and the Douglas Creek Estates. And, you know, I was, I was kind of hopeful at that point that this kind of thing would have been resolved and it would have moved forward and we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't see this, this kind of a situation develop anymore because uh, of, of exactly what took place. Uh, were you surprised by this happening at all when Mackenzie Meadows started to move forward with development? Um, no, I don't think I was surprised by it. I think um, that there's lots and lots of law that says that whenever you know uh, uh, one of our one of our nations, not just here but across the country, uh, makes a stand for the land, that there needs to be a uh, consultation and accommodation process that needs to start to take place, and that wasn't ha- that didn't happen here. And so, when our community uh, had suggested that there was a a valid claim to the land there, uh, the Crown, the Carolyn Bennett's office never never came to the table to uh, to have any of these consultation meetings with uh, with our community in any kind of way. Mm. And so for us, for, for background and context stuff, like we've been here now 114 days. It's uh, July 19th was the day we came in. Mm-hmm. And so we came in on a Sunday night quite deliberately to make sure that it was going to be, remain peaceful, that we didn't want to 
violent confrontation with developer or any of the workers. Like we made sure that we came in and uh, tried to make it as peaceful an occupation of our lands as we possibly could. Uh, the OPP got an injunction several uh, two weeks later, uh, or the sorry, the developer got an injunction two weeks later, and uh, the OPP came and uh, tried to enforce that that injunction on August fifth. Uh, lots of rubber bullets being fired. Uh, uh, one guy was tasered in the neck and head. Another young man got his face dragged along the uh, the asphalt in front of the in front of the uh, development site. And so he's going to have some serious scarring on his face for the rest of his life. And, and then, uh, yeah. And so here we are 114 days later. Um, the, uh, cops have, uh, tried to enforce that injunction by arresting people kind of off site and away from, away from the development as much as they can. And, when that wasn't good enough anymore, they started kind of posting up right in front of the development and uh, threatening to arrest people right at the development. And when they tried to arrest a couple of people and they ran away, they were shot at with rubber bullets again. Another guy was tasered in the back. One guy was shot in the back with a rubber bullet. And so it's uh, it's been an ongoing thing. And so now, uh, since that last that incident, uh, two and a half weeks ago, uh, the roads and railways kind of surrounding the camp have been blocked and barricaded. And so, yeah, so here we sit now on day 114. Mm. Yeah, I can attest to the, the blockades. I was up there just uh, over the weekend uh, trying to get to New Credit uh, to visit someone. And, uh, it, and yeah, I found it very difficult to get anywhere. Uh, that whole area is, like you said, all the roads are, are, uh, are sealed off. Um. Carl, for you, uh, when you when you first went to report and then you were arrested, why don't you give us a little bit of a background history on that and and uh, and then how it stands now for you going back to the community? Because I understand that uh, you're able to go back and report at this point in time. Yeah, that's right. So uh, as Skylar mentioned, already on July 19th, the land defenders moved in and it was a peaceful, peaceful occupation at that time. So the next day, on July 20th, I, I went up there with my co-host, Sean Vanderkliss, and, and we wanted to see what was happening. Um, and so we actually, we sat down. I, I remember the day vividly. We were really trying to figure out what was happening. We were um, thinking about how to tell the story. We went to a lot of trouble on that first day to um, introduce ourselves slowly to what was being organized at the time and, and to take the uh, effort to really sit around, get to know people, mm. I think. Uh, and just to, just to learn about this story. Uh, that was the first of about 15 visits before I realized that, that it just, in, in our opinion, from one dish, one mic, we didn't think the news was covering it enough. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't think that the whole side of the story was getting told uh, simple things like Haudenosaunee sovereignty mm-hmm. is something that's just overlooked. We, I mean, from the time I came out of my mom, I was taught that I'm not Canadian. I'm not American. We have a respectful relationship with, with these governments, but they're not ours. So little things like that I found weren't, weren't trickling into the story. So, so I went about 15 different occasions. And then I said, you know what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to get a tent and I'm actually going to spend a week there. I'm going to immerse myself in the story. I'm going to embed myself with, with the leadership and with the land defenders. And then, and then I'm going to write what, what I think, would be the truest version of, of what was happening on the ground there. So, so I did that. The week went great. 
like, you know, it was, it was a hard week for the land defenders. So I, I mean, I want to temper that and, and land defending itself is, is challenging, but the week from a, from a storytelling standpoint, I thought, man, like I really, I get this movement. I see lots of young people here singing social songs and there's poets coming and musicians and lacrosse. And there were like art, like I talked to a photographer that had photographed standing rock and, and just, there was just this, this coming together of things that you just don't have outside of a camp like this. So I was getting my story ready. Everything was, was good. I, you know, I posted a couple updates to our social media feeds and then, and then I went back and I left on a Saturday. And then the following Tuesday, I was, I was contacted by the police by email who asked me to call them. And then they told me over the telephone that, that they were going to, they were going to arrest me. They're going to charge me with failure, failure to comply with the court order and mischief. Uh, I, I explained right away. I said, no, no, this, this is a misunderstanding. I'm a member of the media. I'm a journalist. I'm writing about what's happening here. And they said, well, you can, you can present your evidence when you, when you come in person to meet with us. Mm. And as soon as they said evidence, mm. that's when I was like, ah, okay, I see. I mm. see what's going on here. Um, naively, I was still going to go in and talk myself out of it. I reached out to some friends in media who said, Carl, do not go into that police station alone. And I realized, yeah, when, like, when does an indigenous person going into a police station alone ever really end up with a, with a favorable result? <laughs> and I, you know, I got advice and now my whole, my whole life has shifted. I'm back to telling the story, but it, it's weird because I do think that the storyteller and the story itself should be separate, but the OPP took that away from me when, when they arrested me. And now, now I'm linked with Skylar. Mm. Uh, and I'm, and I'm also linked with, with Karen now, which is, which is a positive, mm. uh, because that, that helped <laughs> give me perspective for sure. Right. Are you uh, saying that being linked with me is not a positive <laughs> thing, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> you should hear what the police say about you, Skylar. <laughs> <laughs> okay well you know uh there were a number of things that, that came out of that so carl you said one of the reasons you wanted to get in there was to see if you could get the other side of the story and get some of the some of the things not being told out uh into the media so that uh so that 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 could get done from what you've been doing so far would you say that that has been successful i honestly I don't think so. I, we were close. Like the last, the week that I was there for the whole week, APTN had beat reporters there every day, uh, though still largely doing a lot of the coverage from across the street. Mm -hmm. Uh, CBC Indigenous had done one or two stories, but I felt like, I felt like we were turning a corner of balancing out the perspective a little bit by, by providing more perspective from an indigenous perspective. Mm. And then I basically got shut down for, for a month. Mm. Like, like I was so consumed with having to deal with charges and the right. criminal court and, and everything that, right. that I was out. And I'm not saying because I left the story didn't, you know, wasn't balanced. It's right. not, not just about me. Um, but there's a way that media tells these things, this myth of objectivity yes. that, that they have right. that I think creates challenges. Uh, Karen, You've been listening to this, and I'm wondering, I know you have a, a, a sort of a, a nice sense of the, the history of these kind of events in, in around uh, land defense and indigenous reporting uh, going into places. What is your sense when you, when you listen to this? Is it different? Is it the same? Do you, do you see glimmers of light when you, when you look at this situation? Or do you, you see as, a, as the same old and, 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 and how mainstream media is treating it as well? Yeah, I think there's been an evolution, so I can name off. Uh, the Soggy Resistance, Gustafson Lake, Ipperwash, Kokum Bill, Burt Church, 
Caledonia, Lac-Simon, Elsie-Poctuck, uh, Wet'suwet'en. I'm probably missing a few but off mm. my head. So those are some of the, the conflicts that have occurred. And it's always over the same thing, right? It's always over unsettled rights that we know we have and the government is not dealing with them. And then development comes in and it forces people, uh, you know, when the government won't know, it forces people into a position to do something like set up a blockade. And then along comes the police, the blunt instrument mm. of the government to step in and enforce, you know, the, the Western court law. Mm. Um, so, you know, like the, this is uh, this is a way to settle things, but but in point of view of the media, um, Kanesatagi, the media was there. Um, they didn't always do a great job. It was definitely being told you know, from uh, a point of view of um, uh, outsiders, uh, for the most part. The the questions were: How many weapons do they have? How armed are they? Um, there wasn't really an understanding of why that conflict was happening until Alanisa Bomswin came out with her documentary. And um, Gustafson Lake, nobody was there. The Truth came out years later. Ipper Wash, nobody was there. Inquiry years later. They, the mainstream media were covering these things. You were with me at Colcomville, Dave. Yep. Um, and you went to Burnt Church. Yep. This was where APTN starts coming in. And there had been this local media that, that would cover conflicts in or, or cover these um, land conflicts in um, their own territories. But for the first time, APTN was forcing this out into the mainstream. And I think what happened is especially, I saw a change after social media really took off, uh, Facebook and Twitter, where all of a sudden the mainstream media really had their eyes on how APTN was covering things because it was right there and in their face. So these, these stories would come along and they would move in a little bit, but they're still covering them as flashpoints. So when we look at a place like um, El Tiapa, um, that was a peaceful demonstration for months. And mainstream media showed up only when it became, only when it became eminent, we could move in and it looked like somebody could get hurt. Right, right. I forgot Muskrat Falls. Mm. That, that was another one, same right. story. Are you there, Karen? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No worries. Before we go any further, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to have with us on Moment of Truth today. We have Carl Dockstader, Karen Pugliese and uh, Skylar Williams uh, giving us some perspective on uh, land back lane, 1492 land back lane, or Mackenzie Meadows, as it's more been commonly heard of in the news of late. It's a pleasure to have all of them to give us their perspectives in regard to this. Uh, Carl Dockstader, a reporter that was uh, embedded himself in the community for a while. Skyler, of course, is the, the front man there at Land Back Lane. And Kara Pugliese, uh, the former executive director of news and current affairs at APTN for a number of years. And also a reporter that was in the field, as she just mentioned, uh, a number of years ago. So... You know, you talked about, uh, you know, mainstream media showing up only when there was the, the, the possibility of, of uh, you know, police moving in or, or maybe someone getting hurt or some kind of action that they could show uh, on the news itself. Um, 
the other thing, you know, Skylar, you mentioned uh, peaceful, peaceful demonstrations, but I'm wondering, sure. I'm wondering if can, can any kind of, and I'll, I'll throw this out to all you guys. Do you think any kind of disruption in the normal behavior, uh, so-called, is seen as somehow a violent uh, confrontation? I mean, sure it is. I mean, if, uh, and, and you know what, like for um, for us, uh, it has been to try and maintain that peace. Mm. At, at, at a, and, and we go to great, great lengths, and I'm sure Carl can attest to this, to make sure that everybody that, that comes here is on the same page, that like there's, you know, like we do, uh, we go out of our way in every instance to be able to try and de-escalate and uh, keep those tensions to to a low. And mm-hmm. so like uh, Carl had talked about like the lacrosse games mm-hmm. and, the, and music and, yeah. and inviting people that it might even differ from uh, my opinion about the, about the issue. I've, um, uh, have always, you know, invited the people that disagree with me, including the mayor of Haldeman County, Ken Hewitt, and mm-hmm. uh, most recently James Bradbury, who is quite uh, known through Caledonia here as being quite staunchly against us. Who I just sat down with and uh, had dinner with uh, here at, here on site uh, just on Saturday, mm-hmm. and so like uh, so, these are people that like I, I'm more than willing to uh, to sit down with and have these conversations with. Mm. But to tie that back to the, the the journalist piece, like after Carl and some of the uh, other folks that had been arrested, um, the uh, the mood around the, our coverage mm-hmm. with uh, like mainstream media in particular uh, were very, very scared to come, come on the site and talk mm-hmm. to anybody. And certainly for, for Carl to you know, build those relationships in the, in our community so that the, like the, the real story could get out, mm. you know, that the, like this is, you know, not just the kind of parachute in journalism that happens when, you know, there's uh, massive police action or barricades going up or whatever. Like uh, Carl came in and, and, and stayed with us and, and learned, you know, what, what it is our, our fight was about. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, he, because of that, he was able to, to understand, you know, where we were coming from far greater than, you know, any, any of the other journalists that come in and ask the, you know, cookie cutter 10 questions and, you know, to, to slap on their, their thing behind a, you know, a a tire fire or whatever. And like, this is not day to day operation here, you know, like the, the, and, uh, and so, yeah, so after Carl was arrested, like the, there was a very standoffish approach from, from all media, uh, because everybody, all the media was scared to get arrested. Right. Uh, Skylar, do you think that there is a greater awareness in the, the non-indigenous community and in, in the, the Caledonia area in regard to the, the land and the Haudenosaunee um, perspective around land and around the issues pertaining to the Haldeman tract and the Haldeman deed at this point in time? Do you think awareness has been increased or do you think there is still, as you, you mentioned, a staunch, you know, sort of uh, stance against what's going on and what, what the Haudenosaunee are doing uh, with Land Back Lane? Or do you think there is, there is, there is a, a change happening? 
Um, for some people, and it has pushed people off the fence in both directions, right? Mm. And so for some people, it has meant that they wanted to get educated Mm -hmm. and learn about just what it is that we are fighting for. And, you know, everybody, you know, kind of remembers in the, you know, the, the conflict in 2006 Mm -hmm. and that kind of flashpoint around, uh, formerly Douglas Creek Estates, now Gunnestado. Like everybody kind of remembers that in the back of their mind, but it, it, it was 15 years ago. And so yeah. for a lot of people, it, it, it kind of faded, faded from recent memory. And so for them to, you know, understand that this is, there, there are lots of uh, land claim issues mm-hmm. is, is something for a lot of people are, they're, they're learning more about now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then for other folks, that means, you know, uh, they take a very heavily racist turn about it. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, very hard right, right-wing folks have, you know, come out uh, saying all sorts of, you know, I've, my, my death threats come in daily. And, you know, every time one of these politicians stands up in front of a television camera and says some inflammatory remarks uh, from a place of ignorance about the issues, uh, you know, my, my, my death threats go through the roof. And so mm-hmm. like, it's it, it, like, this is something that we've been dealing with now for, you know, since the first, I don't know, about the first week, I guess, mm. since all that started. Right. Uh, Carl, you, you've been, uh, you've been back to, to, uh, 1492 land back lane. You're, you have that freedom to go and report from there. Um, you know, the, I, I think part of the, the first, uh, when you were embedded there, uh, I remember from the conversation of last week when you were you had this talk, uh, you had no ID. You went in, uh, you know, a certain way. I- I'm wondering if your your approach to going in or to uh, to your journalism uh, outings now are are, uh, are have changed. Are you being uh, taking more more of a uh, you know make sure that you've got your ID, you've got all those things in place before you go somewhere. I, I have not changed my approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the first day I went back, I, uh, like I got clearance to go back to, uh, what, what they call whatever the address is on Mackenzie street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the day that, I, that I was back happened to be the day that the judge made his ruling that the OPP inflamed the situation, that, that things got complicated. Mm. And so um, even then, how, like, how would I have prepared in the midst of, of all of the things that were happening mm. to have really done it? Like, you know, is there a check-in at the OPP that I should do? Like, mm. I, I don't think, I don't want to disrespect the hardworking Indigenous journalists that have come before me and made my work possible. So I'm not denigrating them in any way. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, am, I am an Oneida uh, and I'm a journalist yep. and these, these are our territories. So for me, the, it's the police, are the guests coming to, mm. uh, a home that I'm telling a story on. Mm. Right. Uh, Karen, you've been listening to this. I want to go back to that comment I made earlier about, uh, any disruption being looked at, at as, as violent. Um, how do you perceive that? Do you think that's a fair statement to make? Yeah, I mean, this is what mainstream reporters have traditionally gone in to, to cover, is that they're going in to cover the fact that uh, Schuyler's been an inconvenient damn Indian. Mm-hmm. And uh, they want to know if he's going to push back, if he's going to hurt anybody, if he's going to throw any rocks. And that's what they're there for. 
Um, remember Christy Blatchford talking about covering the uh, earlier conflict at Caledonia? And she wrote a book and she said, you know, I was going to go in and like, I didn't have any of the treaties or any of that stuff because um, I don't know anything about that. I just wanted to start from today. <laughs> and it's like, how can you <laughs> cover this story without covering why it's happening? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, she, she went out, she wrote her book and everybody read it. Um, I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit about implicit bias. Skylar brought it up. And this is the thing. We've got Doug Ford saying things about this current conflict. Like, well, you can't just go in and take somebody's home away. There's a rule of law. And it's like, really? Because he took our home away. <laughs> right. There's an absence of understanding in Canada about the fact that Canada is only a legitimate country because of treaties. Without the honoring of those treaties, Canada is not a legitimate country. And that's fact. That is the truth. Mm-hmm. And so media tends not to use that as a starting place or starting point. It's because Canadians don't understand their own history of this country. They're ignorant. And mm-hmm. I mean that not in an insulting way, but yep. they are ignorant. And I think the, I, I think I, where I am seeing a shift is I am seeing some of the new media, some of the startups, um, they are trying to come in and do a better job and fill the gap where legacy media has completely failed to tell a balanced and truthful version of what's happening in these conflicts. Mm. You just touched on something there interesting about when you said uh, Christy Blanchard and, and uh, you know, I want to start from today. Uh, and then you, you mentioned uh, the comments by uh, by uh, Premier Doug Ford about, uh, uh, you know, today. It, it sounds like, you know, it's the most convenient way to delve into something. People don't want to, to – they don't want to know the history, right? They don't want to take the time to learn it. They, they just want it to be over with. So they're looking for the easy answer. And, and there is no easy answer in dealing with Indigenous issues, as you just mentioned, Karen, because of the treaties. The treaties are where the answers are. The treaties are where all that information that the country should be aware of and should be going back to to look at to see about the relationship with Indigenous people across the country. Uh, anybody else have anything else they want to add? We're gonna we're getting close to the end of the of our time, and it's been great having all of you on, and I appreciate you all joining me today. Uh, uh, Skylar, how about you? Any final comments? Um, you know, well, speaking of Christy Blatchford, I also had some honorable mention in her book for my mm. involvement in two thousand and six. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, she mentioned me on a, on a couple of occasions in her book. I mean. And this is the thing is this particular development is directly across the road mm-hmm. from 2006 Gunnestado. Mm-hmm. Like, and so for, for uh, 15 years to let those, you know, people that, you know, remember what happened in 2006, this is, this is, this is that ongoing fight for us. And we need to be mm-hmm. able to uh, uh, maintain uh, what we said then. And, uh, and it's something that we are, you know, uh, consistently putting out there is that, you know, this isn't, we, we, we absolutely do not want a massive confrontation with anybody. Mm-hmm. We want to be respected as, as a nation unto ourselves as, as we know that we are. Mm-hmm. And for, for Carl, for, uh, him being Oneida, this is, it's, it's, uh, for him to have say in this as an Oneida, mm-hmm. as this was a Oneida, Oneida village site. Like this is where, uh, Oneidas were 
took up took up camp when mm. they first moved here from so like this is like this is we are a nation mm. unto ourselves and we need to 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 act as such and we need to be respected as such okay carl you want to follow up with that yeah i mean i want to i want to jump in and mention that uh i don't think it's a coincidence that the police services board used christy blatchford's description of skyler in a report that they issued where they labeled the land defenders terrorists what what happens at first off christy christy blatchford was passing herself off as a journalist um it, but secondly, she characterized people in a way that made the criminalization of indigenous people easy. And that that's mm-hmm. my takeaway. If you, if you know nothing else about my arrest, like, of course, journalist rights are important. But what was a real element here is that it's very easy to arrest indigenous people. And that's something I share with the 30, soon to be 50, however many more indigenous people that, that we're willing to see arrested coming off a of summer where we asked, asked for racial reconciliation and for the police to be checked. And instead, the premier is hiring 200 more police officers. We're watching everybody, including journalists, get arrested before our very eyes. And I'm scared that Canadians are tolerant of this behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. Uh, and uh, Karen? Yeah, I'm really glad that Carl brought up reconciliation. That's exactly where I wanted to go. I've heard a lot of odd definitions of people are defining reconciliation lately. But the Truth and Reconciliation Report defined it the same way as the 1996 Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And it said Canada needs to remake itself so that we fit into it the way that we're supposed to fit into it, however that is. And that's going to be different for every nation. And, you know, this is the thing. Um, I, I've seen our people really change over the last 20 years. It seems like by leaps and bounds, we're just stronger and stronger all the time. And reconciliation is going to happen because we're going to make it happen. It may not feel like a warm hug when it's happening. Mm. Sometimes it's going to happen with coffee, but we're going to fight for it. And we're going to remake Canada in the way that we need it to be made so that we can live with it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You know, I just want to add one little thing about my own personal involvement uh, on uh, on the 2006 Douglas Creek Estates. Uh, Karen, I don't know if you remember, but at that time I was freelancing and I, I did a freelance story with, with APTN and a couple of CTV mm-hmm. was following me around. And I remember APTN uh, was, was actually calling me up to say, oh, follow this lead, follow that lead. But it was all freelance, so I wasn't getting any money. And, um, and and if you remember around that time, there was a big question of who's in charge. Nobody knew who was in charge. And there was lots of questions around that. And I spent about a week, like Carl did, going back and forth between the community of Six Nations and Caledonia just to see what was going on, see what people were saying, and, and, and get a sense of what story wasn't being told. And that was the story that I, I finally saw that, you know, that was the one thing that wasn't coming out is who's in charge. So I, I, I took the time to put this story together on the clan mothers, on the whole thing about uh, you know, going to the, to the, the elected council. And, and I gave the whole story and I, I fed that to both CTV as well as uh, APTN. And, um, and I was kind of surprised because that seemed to be the story that people were looking for. Nobody knew, like I said, who's in charge. But I was surprised that no other media outlets picked up that story. You know, just in regard of, well, if you really wanted to know who was in charge and you really wanted to know that story, how come that wasn't uh, a story that ran uh, wider than it did just on APTN and, and, uh, and, and CTV? 
Hmm. That's interesting. I I think it goes with my theory that so often the journalists who go into this are ill-prepared. They don't know the history. They don't know the background. And uh, they're supposed to file on a tight deadline. They're not given the time. Hmm. But also they're there looking for something very particular. And it's not necessarily the truth, the long view of the truth of why things are happening. It's, um, you know, the short-term hit for television. Mm-hmm. Who's throwing rocks? Yep. More of a headline. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank uh, Carl Dockstader, Karen Pugliese, and Skylar Williams for joining us on Moment of Truth today. It's really been a pleasure having you guys on, and uh, I want to thank you for doing so. Chimiguetch, Nyawagoa, and also... Uh, you know, I'd love to be able to follow up with all of you at a later date to, and and uh, catch up on this at, at a later time, if that's okay with all of you. Yeah, for sure it is. Cool. Anytime. All Anytime. Right. And of course, you can you can listen to us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on AM 610. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. You, you, you really like that throwing that girl. in there. That a boy, <laughs> I'm surprised it took you so long. <laughs> well, I did. I did it for him earlier. That's why. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, guys. Much appreciated. All right. You have a good day, guys. You too. Take care. Bye. 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 They're the voices of Karen Pugliese, uh, Carl Dockstader, and Skylar Williams. They've been my guests here on Moment of Truth today, and we've been talking about Landback Lane, 1492 Landback Lane, uh, Mackenzie Meadows in the Caledonia area, as well as getting some perspective of the history of Indigenous journalism and reporting, and uh, just, of course, press freedom and land defense. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is also a pleasure to welcome to the show Shannon O'Loughlin, and she's the Executive Director and Attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs in the United States. We're here to talk about, I guess, a number of things, Shannon, but, but I guess, you know, to start off with, uh, the wall uh, between the United States and Mexico, I, I guess that's creating quite a few issues for Indigenous people and, and some of the nations that uh, have, have traditional territories and especially have areas where their, their ancestors are buried along, along that wall, which is uh, being, I understand, uh, blown up in some cases and, and they're moving and, and not even, I guess they're not even taking the time to move these bones or, or have them repatriated uh, prior to this happening. Uh, thanks, David, and thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Um, I want to let you know also that I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and that I'm coming to you from the traditional homelands of the Piscataway peoples, which is now known as Maryland. Uh, the border wall issue is kind of a continuing saga in uh, mm. U.S. manifest destiny policy. Mm. Um, uh, the U.S. tends to dig dig up things and ask questions later. Mm. And the border is no exception, except this time um, it's being done without any environmental reviews whatsoever. It's done pursuant an emergency proclamation made by uh, President Donald Trump. So that means the processes that were supposed to happen, the tribal consultation that was supposed to take place between the United States and the affected tribes did not happen. Mm. 
And so the tribes were not able to weigh in on uh, information about where burials may be, uh, what their traditional practices are, and how they um, often cross the border um, uh, consistently to practice uh, uh, traditional religions uh, so that these actions are also affecting our uh, constitutional right um, to practice religion. And um, uh, there's a lot of back and forth um, traveling at the border but with indigenous communities on both sides, communities that are recognized by the United States as um, being part of uh, the U.S. territory, but also with um, relations in Mexico. So it's, it's a constant battle at the border. Uh, now what has made it worse is uh, the president's all-out destruction uh, without any process or protections in place. Mm. I guess the repeal that uh, President Trump uh, brought in on many fronts, one of them being with uh, the burial sites uh, of indigenous uh, people, uh, it also affects the environment uh, and, and also, I understand, endangered species as well. Right. And, and, and water. Um, mm. There are some natural springs uh, in the area as well that are used for ceremonial purposes as well as for um, wildlife and other uh, uh, is part of the resource of that area that's not being considered. Mm. Now, you were appointed to the, the Secretary of the Department of, of the Interior um, and also appointed by President Barack Obama as the first Native American uh, to the Cultural Property Advisory Committee uh, within the State Department in 2015. But then uh, President Trump uh, fired you in 2019. Can you, can you give us, uh, can you shed any light on that in terms of what happened? Uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not clear what happened. Uh, my appointment by President Barack Obama was very special and unique. Mm. Uh, the Cultural Property Advisory Committee in the U.S. State Department oversees the 1970s Convention on uh, the uh, Protection of Cultural Patrimony from Illegal Trafficking and mm. other um, uh, war and other acts. Uh, so this committee oversees and advises the president on entering into agreements with other countries to protect cultural uh, properties and cultural patrimony. Mm -hmm. That also means uh, that uh, the committee is able to work on agreements to help protect Native American uh, cultural properties and cultural patrimony. So my appointment to that cultural property advisory committee was with quite a bit of foresight mm. uh, with what uh, President Obama and his administration sought to do to protect Native American cultures. Mm. Um, and of course, once a new president is in, uh, a new president can, always has the discretion to remove uh, individuals from any kind of federal committee uh, such as this. Um, and he chose to do so. He didn't remove anyone else who was appointed by Obama or mm. anyone else in the committee who had been there, who've been there for decades. Mm. Um, but he did uh, choose to remove me, the only uh, Native American um, appointed. 
and replace me with uh, his external ethics um, attorney who was at the time under investigation. Hmm. So I'm not sure why that happened, Hmm. but it does make um, President Trump's statements now that he is wanting to protect Native American cultural patrimony and and cultural sites a little bit hollow Mm. since he removed that uh, a Native American person from the committee that sought to do that. (laughs) Shannon, I also understand that you recently attended the sixth annual repatriation conference, and that was the 30th anniversary of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And you you have called that a very, very important uh, piece of legislation. Yes, the um, the Association on American Indian Affairs uh, uh, has an annual repatriation conference. This year, our sixth annual conference uh, commemorated the 30th anniversary of NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It really is the only human rights legislation in the U.S. that was created to repair the damage that U.S. policy had inflicted in Indian country. Uh, The U.S. had passed laws and policies in the 18 and uh, 1900s to outlaw religion um, and uh, make those acts criminal uh, with punishment uh, where Native people were practicing their religion, uh, practicing their languages, Um, using uh, cultural items, visiting their religious sites, and, of course, um, the process of removing uh, Native land tenure uh, from Indigenous peoples also removed our access to those religious and cultural sites. Um, So NAGPRA was meant to help heal one part of that um, That those genocidal policies, which was returning the ancestors that have been dug up, the funerary objects, the cultural and and sacred items that had been stolen from tribes, return those back to um, tribal nations so that they can give their ancestors a a final resting place and, and move forward with their journey. Uh, The act is extremely important in what we've found for institutions who have uh, responded and complied with this federal law is that beautiful relationships have been built between tribes and museums and academia and, and other institutions where now those institutions know what's in their collections and they've also, it's also helped them with the process of decolonization so that they're telling the real stories, the truth about um, uh, indigenous people in their institutions, instead of merely um, focusing on, um, you know, putting a sacred object behind glass mm-hmm. with a, a limited tag on it. Um, you know, that doesn't educate the public much, and it's, it's uh, extremely damaging to have our religion in our religious pieces behind glass in that way. So it's helped build those relationships and really help institutions fulfill the missions uh, of public education. Right. There are still, however, 
um, institutions that have not complied with the act. There are um, 122,000 known ancestors. So this is just the burial removed from Mm. the earth uh, that are still within uh, institutions after 30 years. And many of these institutions have chose to call these ancestors unaffiliated with any tribe. Mm. So even though these, these um, ancestors uh, came from a particular place that is known and that those places are connected to uh, the original native people that are still here today, they have not uh, consulted with those tribes and affiliated those ancestors with those tribes so they can be created. So there's still a lot of work to do under this act. And there's a lot more work on um, uh, enforcement uh, that should also be done under this act to Mm. get these institutions to do the right thing. Right. There's also a a new law um, that we hope gets passed soon. It's called the Safeguarding Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act. And it's to prevent our items from being exported out of the U S into other countries. Um, And, and sold uh, because we found a lot of our items are still being sold at auction, mm. um, both domestically and internationally. So the association and uh, folks that work in repatriation have been really trying to move um, the needle uh, to educate investors in tribal artifacts and tribal antiquities to stop buying those things uh, because uh, collectors are not consulting with tribes about the items that they have and whether uh, they should have them in the first place Mm -hmm. Um, and instead purchase contemporary native um, artworks that were meant to be shared and sold and invested in. So uh, a lot out of that repatriation conference. Right. Um, you mentioned that things have changed in the last 10 years when you were at the, the 20th uh, year of the anniversary of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And then the 30 years, uh, you say things have changed and it sounds like things have, have moved forward and advanced. Uh, but at this point, with the repealing of, of certain laws and protectionisms that uh, were in place for uh, burial sites, etc., have we taken a step back now? What's interesting about federal Indian law and policy in the United States is that it's very schizophrenic Mm. and quite often dependent on whomever has control of the executive or legislative branches. So um, federal Indian law and policy provides room to protect uh, indigenous rights, and it also provides room to, to terminate those rights. And uh, what we have found over the last four years is a strong desire to uh, terminate and eliminate um, rights as uh, separate sovereigns uh, who are supposed to have a government-to-government relationship with uh, the the federal government, um, and that the rights that we have to consult uh, with the federal government about things that may have the potential to affect how we uh, govern our own peoples uh, just have not been followed through with. So 
um, where we have individuals in institutions and museums that have been real supportive of decolonizing their institutions and working hand in hand with uh, tribal nations and indigenous peoples uh, and doing really creative things. We are, um, we have many um, local, regional, and of course, federal uh, government policies that um, we are constantly having to fight to protect against, like at the border, Mm. like with um, the various pipelines uh, across America. Mm. Um, We're just not having any seat at the table whatsoever um, or the seat that we do have is is merely to let us know that we don't have any rights um, mm. wow. to amend or change things or let ourselves be heard. Wow. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the uh, across Canada. If you type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and download the Radio Player Canada app. It's a pleasure to welcome and have on the show with me Shannon O'Loughlin. She is Executive Director and Attorney at the Association on American Indian Affairs in the United States. And as she pointed out at the top of the show, she is also a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. And it's a a pleasure to have her on the show. Uh, Shannon, you know, a couple of things you mentioned there about pipelines and about the border. That's how we started talking about what was going on with border and the building of the wall and how that is affecting uh, traditional territories, burial sites uh, along that as they are putting the wall in and and uh, excavating as well as uh, blowing things up to to get the wall in place. What is the situation? And 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 I'm sure that even prior to uh, you know perhaps President Trump coming into into play uh, on this, I understand the wall has been going on for for quite a number of, of decades. It's been other other under other uh, U.S. presidents as well. Um, but I'm wondering why would there not be, for instance. Um, time given to at least address uh, nations and, and, and tribes' concerns about even repatriating or allowing them to uh, remove the remains so they, they, they can be reburied somewhere else prior to the wall being put in place. Has there been any discussion on that front? Yeah, absolutely. So um, w- what's happening under this current administration is uh, the border wall is being uh, built um, pursuant to emergency proclamations Mm. of of the president Mm -hmm. um, and utilizing law, uh, emergency laws that allow the federal government to um, override any kind of environmental uh, or cultural or other concerns of the public or of tribal nations. So um, because there's, uh, there's no longer any requirement uh, for that input, uh, construction workers and crews and engineers, they're just moving forward uh, with whatever way they think is the, the, the best mm. to proceed with the wall. I have heard um, uh, that it's a situation of uh, proceed forward and, and ask for forgiveness later mm. so that the, the damage is caused and then um, tribes are invited to help clean up Mm. after the fact or um, recover any remains found after the fact. 
but there's been no discussion. It's, it's more than just burial sites that are around the border wall. It has to do with access right. to religious sites as well. Right. So um, there have been some tribes that are suing the Trump administration, mm-hmm. the Kumeyaay Nation, which consists of, I believe, um, 13 uh, different federally recognized tribes um, are suing the federal government. I think a, another Kumeyaay tribe had sued the government earlier, but that case did not move forward. So, so the matter is in litigation. Um, and, and what I think is really interesting about um, what's happening here in, in California and Arizona is that it has really, this action of the border wall and others during, uh, during the time of this administration has really significantly amplified the native voice in politics. And um, uh, the native vote has really moved um, uh, the presidential race in, in a few states, including Arizona. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, though this administration has been more oppressive than others recently. Um, what we found is that uh, we have really moved uh, forward to uh, push the agenda of Native American people. There have been a lot, uh, a lot of organizations advocating for Native American rights to, to fight off um, uh, the damages that the current administration has caused. Right. With with uh, President Trump implementing, the, the, like you said, this emergency act, uh, allowing him to bypass all of these things, does that only affect the border or would that impact other areas and other things that would involve indigenous issues? And that's what we're finding is that the emergency proclamations are being used um, in other development projects mm. Um uh, also, uh, one of Trump's priorities was to amend uh, regulations in, in various executive departments, uh, making them more efficient. Mm. And so there has been a lot of movement uh, to remove uh, consultation efforts from regulations, as well as remove other types of protections from um Clean Water Act regulations um, and others, so that development can be done um, uh, more efficiently. Um, at the very beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, he uh, uh, shrunk the size of the Bears Ears National Monument, along with some other national monuments, and then proceeded to sell off uh, the sacred areas that include burials. Um, as well as other important archaeological, historical, and religious sites, and sell them off to extractive industries. So um, uh, this is something that um, President Trump's executive orders, proclamations, and regulatory amendments that he's done in the last four years has worked to really damage uh, the protections that we have have built over the last hundred years. Mm. Uh, the there is an act that was created in 1906, the Antiquities Act, 
which was really the first uh, piece of legislation to protect archaeological sites. Uh, It really wasn't meant to protect Native Americans per se, but that act has been used over time and other laws have joined it to help protect uh, certain areas that are Native American sites. Mm. And uh, those sites, uh, the co-management responsibilities, uh, the protections uh, have been uh, removed uh, with the current administration. Mm. Shannon, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the future so that we can continue this conversation. That would be wonderful. Thank you, David. You're very welcome. Uh, Wanishi Chimigwech and Yawa for joining us on the show. That's the voice of Shannon O'Loughlin. She's executive director and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs in the United States. And uh, she's also a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. It's been a pleasure having her on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listen to the show each and every day right here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.